Thank you very much, Afam. That's uh, kind of you to encourage me in that way. So I'm going to be speaking from Psalm 6, a psalm of anguish. Last week, John did one on worship and uh, a psalm of anguish. But I trust by the time I finish, you won't be so anguished as maybe you walked in. That's, uh, I don't want to increase your anguish. I want to try and alleviate it. So let's have a look at the psalm, psalm of David. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from his grave? I'm worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. So a uh, song of anguish. Well, what is anguish, first of all? Let's have a look. Let's define that. Well, anguish is sorrow. It's grief. It's heartache. They all have similar meanings. And it can be caused in many different ways. I'm sure you can think of some, even as you're sitting here today. Relationship breakdown can cause profound anguish. Separation from those we love, through bereavement particularly. Breakdown in health. Tragedies in life, even this week. Little girl up in North Yorkshire, walking with family below a cliff and a rock falls on her. And she's killed. Tragedies in life create anguish, terrible injustice. Or being a victim of someone else's wickedness and so on can cause anguish. I wonder what caused King David to write this psalm. What were the circumstances he might have been enduring? Well, the truth is we don't exactly know, but we do know a couple of things about him. We do know, for example, that he was unjustly persecuted by King Saul. At one time, King Saul tried to pin the young David to the wall with a spear and he had to flee into the wilderness. Maybe it was that occasion, or it might have been the occasion when he was betrayed by his son, Absalom. The son whom he really loved. He had a special affection for Absalom, and Absalom turned against him and wanted to seize the throne. And David had to flee into the wilderness. And maybe it was that occasion that David is thinking about as he writes this psalm. I think that situation is maybe more likely, but the truth is we don't really know. But we do know that this psalm was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's got a universal application. We also know that Jesus suffered his own personal anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane when his sweat is described as being like drops of blood. And the book of Hebrews tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. It's important to recognize that our God is not remote from the things that cause us sorrow, grief, heartache, anguish. So the first thing I want to say this morning is Jesus understands you. David writes here in verse 1, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger 
or discipline me in your wrath? Well, I guess we all need some correction from time to time. We sometimes may speak harshly or unfairly to someone. We don't always do the good that's in our power to do. We can act selfishly and stupidly. Maybe not so much you, but I know that I can. We can be self-righteous and have a bit of a superior attitude if we're not careful. We can be lazy or indifferent to others and so on. I don't particularly like being corrected. How about you? Uh, When someone points out something to do with your attitude or your behavior, I know I need it, and I know that if I can receive it, then it will be helpful for me. And I have to say that the Lord often uses other people to help me in this way. In my case, it's usually my nearest and dearest who will help correct me, or Neil on occasions will do it as well. I've had to receive correction from all of them. I have to say this, I'm so grateful when they do it in a kind and gracious manner. Like David, I don't want God to do it to me in anger. David writes in verse 2, Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. I don't know about you, but I want to be treated in a merciful manner. How about you? And how do you treat other people? Do you do it mercifully? Do you do it graciously? Do you do it kindly? Do you do it with forgiveness? Now, when I was a boy, not just when I was a boy, when I was a young man as well, one of the things that I had to do was I had to study Shakespeare. I don't remember an awful lot about it, but I do remember something, so please forgive me if I quote a little bit back to you about mercy. You may know it yourself. He wrote this. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. In other words, if you don't get all of that, mercy is a blessing to those who give it and to those who receive it. And any ruler who shows mercy is powerful indeed. In another psalm, the psalmist writes, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? There's only one person who could stand. And that's Christ, because he had no sin. And Christ treats you and me in a merciful manner. I trust you agree. He is our high priest. And Jesus understands you. It says in the book of Hebrews, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. How amazing to think that not only does Jesus understand you, but he stands before the very throne of God and prays for you and me. The powerful one that we were singing about earlier, the one who put the stars in in space, is praying for you and me. You're never alone. And yet the psalmist also writes in verse 3, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? It echoes another psalm, Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. When there seems no end to what we're going through, or even when things get worse, it's tough. God can seem absent, uncaring even. It's a good thing to express what we're really feeling to the Lord, not to hide it, Or pretend that things are not so bad. 
or to gloss it over. No, the psalmist certainly doesn't do that. He expresses what is really in his heart. How long? Maybe you're in that situation. How long? How long does this have to go on? Why am I not seeing things change? Why am I not seeing an improvement? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes that on the cross. And sometimes we can get so low in our lives that that's what it can feel like. And of course, we have an enemy who loves to tap us on our shoulder and say to us, yeah, if you've got such a caring God, if you've got such an understanding God, if you've got such a loving God, why are you going through this? Why are you not seeing an improvement? Why are you not seeing a change? Well, I'll tell you why. He doesn't care. All that mumbo jumbo that you hear about on a Sunday, that's all it is. It's just pie in the sky. It's just nonsense. It's just fairy tales. It means nothing significant at all. Otherwise, if it did, things in your life would change. They would improve. They would be better. We have an enemy who loves to run down our relationship with God. And that's one of the things that he wants us to do. But David acknowledges his loss. He acknowledges his anguish before the Lord. And I would encourage each one of us to acknowledge the reality of the situation that we are facing. It can be painful to acknowledge. But it's not a sign of weakness or lack of faith. Vulnerability isn't weakness. Jesus showed his vulnerability. He showed it in the Garden of Gethsemane. For example, and Jesus understands. The one we come to, he understands everything that we go through. He himself, rejected by his family, rejected by his own community, rejected by the Jewish authorities, rejected by the Roman occupiers, misunderstood, maligned, abandoned by his followers, dragged before a kangaroo court, mocked, blindfolded, beaten within an inch of his life, stripped of his clothes, publicly executed by being nailed to a cross. Then that mysterious moment when he feels utterly forsaken by God as the punishment for the degrading wickedness of you and me that's poured out upon him. If anyone understands anguish, it's Christ. He understands you and me and he treats you and me with mercy. So we can come to him with the reality of what we're experiencing. Second thing I want to say is this. God is for you. We sang that earlier. Lovely song. Thank you, Louise, and the band for leading us like that. God is for you. David writes in verse four, turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? So here he talks about God's unfailing love. In what sense is God's love unfailing? Because God's love is not simply an emotional feeling that he has as he sits on his throne. But it's one of his defining characteristics. God is love. Well, I want to say a few things about what God's love is like. First thing I want to say is this. It's a faithful love. Jesus has made a sacred covenant with us. Sealed with his blood. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And we sing that lovely song, don't we? Oh Lord, you never let go. Through the calm and through the storm, you never let go of me. It's a rock on which we stand. It's a faithful love. It's also a sacrificial love. Like a parent may sacrifice their own comfort. And I'm sure many of you have done that here. Where you sacrifice your own comfort. Why? For the sake of your child. You could do with buying a new pair of shoes, perhaps, or a 
jumper or whatever it is, and you deny yourself that. Why? In order to provide for your child. A sacrificial love. This is how we know what love is. The Apostle John writes, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. It's a faithful love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a tender love. I love this passage from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 11. Speaking of God, it says, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This speaks of the vulnerable. It speaks of those who've no power. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel vulnerable? Do you ever feel as if you've no power? It speaks of those who are easily preyed upon. You know, I've got several grandchildren and the youngest one, little girl, she's one and a bit years old. And um, whenever she sees me, she will reach out her hands like that. And she, does, she can't speak yet. She does say, you know, but she doesn't make utterances, shall we say. And uh, she, she holds out her arms like that. goes, ah, because she wants me to pick her up. And that's what I usually do. I pick her up and hold her close to myself. You know, God does that for you and me too. Gently leads those that are with young. It's a tender love that God has for you. It's a sacrificial love that God has for you. It's a faithful love that God has for you. Not only that, it's a deliberate love. It's not, oh, well, oh, oh, by the way, I just, no, no, it's a deliberate love that God has for you and me. And Jesus says this in John's gospel, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So as Jesus makes his journey to the cross, it's a deliberate love that he has for you and me. And one thing that a deliberate love does is a deliberate love makes good plans for others. A few years ago, I had a special birthday and my wife made a plan for me. And the plan was to go to Uganda. Why Uganda? Well, Uganda was because our youngest son, Steve, was working for a Christian charity over there at the time. And Joy thought it would be good for me to just go over there on his birthday. But no one was going to tell him. Everybody else knew, but nobody else knew. He didn't. So that's what happened. I flew over to Uganda, stayed the night with some friends. And then in the morning, he was still asleep when I walked into his room. A bit of a shock, perhaps, you might say. That's not the kind of thing you might like, but, I mean, he is young. He can cope with that kind of shock, you know. And uh, So he got woken up to find, lo and behold, there's his dad standing there. Uh, I still got to find out why he thought of that. But why did we do the plan? Why was the plan? The plan was because of love. That's what it was. It was because of love. God has made a plan. It's a deliberate love. And God has included you. And it says in Ephesians, for he chose us in him. When? He chose us in him. When? Before the creation of the world. So God has a deliberate love for you. And when you go through times of anguish, I want you to remember that. God's love is for you. It's faithful. God's love for you is sacrificial. God's love for you is tender. God's love for you is deliberate. In my experience, God can use the things we suffer to help make us more compassionate to others. I don't want to suffer. Who does? I don't want to go through a period of anguish. I don't say, okay, I, I'm, I'm asking the Lord to give me a period of anguish. Lord, I just, just 
Jesus, will you just uh, give me some troubles in my life today? Will you make it really tough? No, I never, I've never prayed that. And yet God can use our suffering to help make us more compassionate toward others. It can help us more understanding. It's amazing as well, one of the characters I love in the Bible is Job. And if you've read the book of Job, or even if you haven't, you will realize that that man suffered a terrible amount. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his friendships, many of them. He lost respect within the community. He lost his health. And yet in the midst of the anguish that that man went through, and one day I hope to be able to meet him, love to meet Job, and shake his hand and say, you didn't know why you were going through that. But I want to tell you this, Job. I read your story. And your story was so challenging. Your story was so incredible. Your story taught taught me a lot about suffering. And that actually in the midst of all the darkness that you went through, all the anguish that you went through, God, far from having abandoned you, he was right there with you in it. You didn't feel it. You didn't see it at the time. And isn't that true of you and me as well? That when you go through our time of anguish, often we don't see it. We don't feel it. It feels as if God's abandoned me. Where is he? And yet even with Job there, God's right there with him in the midst of it all. And God has a purpose for Job's suffering. I wonder, as I've been thinking about this psalm, I've been puzzling over this question. I wonder, could it be that in the midst of our anguish, in the midst of the things that you suffer, the disappointments of life, the hurdles in life, that God has a purpose for it? That maybe you can't see, but you have to put your hand in his hand and say, I can't see it, Lord. And I love the way the King James Version puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, talking about what we can see and what we can't see. We see through a glass darkly, it says. We see through a glass darkly. I can't see everything. I can't see all God's purposes. Some are hidden from me. I see bits and pieces, but I can't see it all. So what do I do? When I'm going through this period of anguish and darkness, when I can't see, I see through a glass darkly. Put my hand in his. I see through a glass darkly. I admit that. I confess that. I'm in anguish. Why does it feel like you've forsaken me? I know you haven't, but it feels like it. I put my hand in his. Say, ah, but I trust you, Lord, because I know your love is sacrificial. I know your love is faithful. I know your love is tender. I know your love is deliberate. And we put our hand in his and we trust him in the midst of what we go through. Not only that, God's love, it's a powerful love. My sheep listen to my voice, Jesus says. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. It's a powerful love that God has for you and me. So far from you being abandoned, no, no, no. That is a lie. God has never abandoned you. Whatever you've gone through and any of the dark situations of life that you have faced or are facing or will face, Never will I abandon you. My love is powerful. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I love this song that we sing. Who has told every lightning bolt where it should go? Or seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow? Who imagined the sun and gave source to its light? And yet conceals it to bring us the coolness of light. None can fathom. We put our hand in his. It's a powerful love that God has for us. Not only that. It's a personal love. 
I love this in, in the book of Revelation. I don't understand it all. And I puzzled over this. And I've read the commentaries to see what they say. And even they are mystified by what the apostle John is revealing here. When Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Boy, that's mysterious, isn't it? I will give a new name, known only to the one who receives it. What's that all about? Well, the commentators are a bit baffled by that. I'm a bit baffled by it as well. But this I do know. There's something incredibly personal about that. A new name that only you will know and God will know. That strikes me as being incredibly personal. I don't know about you. Do you experience in a tangible way the love and care of God? I'm sure you do. I experienced the Lord opening doors of opportunity for me. The Lord has blessed me in many ways. The other week, I was standing at the back of our Hazelmere meeting, just having, you know, worshiping the Lord and uh, standing beside Andy, our eldest son, and he was worshiping the Lord. And I just had such a profound sense of God's involvement in my family, of God fulfilling his promises, despite sometimes what things look like. The way things are now, the way things look like now, are not necessarily the way things are going to be tomorrow. Why? Because God's at work. God is at work, even when it doesn't feel like like it. God's love is a personal love. David writes in verse 5, Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? Well, if you walk through the cemetery at Hamilton Road, it's pretty silent. If you're in Christ then you're not dead. You're alive. You're alive in Christ. And perhaps our praise to God is an indication of how alive we are. This morning, for example, were we able to praise God? The dead don't praise you. Are you dead? Or are you alive in him? If you're alive in him, then are you open to praise him? The dead don't praise Christ, but those who are alive do. I was encouraged uh, during the World Cup to see the England football team sing the national anthem at the World Cup. I may be old-fashioned. In other occasions, a lot of them have never sung it. And I thought, why? Why don't you sing it? I mean, do you not, are you not glad to represent your country? And, I mean, even if you can't sing, can you mime? Give the appearance of singing? That would be helpful. Anyway, this year, they all sang it. And I felt it encouraging as well. What I'm saying is this, I find it very encouraging when I see God's people singing his praise. And often, the most encouragement comes when I realize that person is actually going through a tough time in their life. That person's facing real obstacles in their life. And I know something of their story. I know something of the difficulties that they're going through. And yet I see them here on a Sunday morning, and I see them with their arms raised to the Lord, or I see them opening their voice, opening their vocal cords, and singing to the Lord. You know, actually, as well, going back to the England football team, maybe some of them don't sing because they think, well, I can't really sing. I'm tone deaf. I'm flat. Who cares? You know, when 70,000 people are singing, anyway, nobody's going to hear you, are they? It's a bit like that in church. If you are standing next to me, and you are tone deaf, and you are singing as flat as a pancake, I'll tell you what, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. Will I care? No, because you are exalting the Lord. So just wait till you see me dance. And you compare me to somebody else. 
<laughs> no, the dead don't praise you. Those who are alive. God is for you in the midst of it. The third thing I want to say is this. So I've said this. Jesus understands you. God is for you. The third thing I want to say is this. We are on the winning side. In verse 6 and 7, David writes, I'm worn out from my groaning. And it echoes with you here. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. There's a profound sadness here, isn't it? How's he going to get out of this? My eyes go weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. I mean, he is really down. Do you ever get like that? Where you feel really down. You feel as if in order for you to feel better, what you're going to have to do is this. You're going to have to lift yourself up using your own laces. Have you ever tried that? No? Maybe you should try it now and again. You know, bend down and then try and lift yourself up by pulling your laces. And sometimes when you're in that sense of darkness, when you're in that sense of sorrow, when you're in that sense of anguish, in order to get out of it, you feel it's a bit like trying to lift yourself up using your laces. Impossible, in other words. And it seems as if David's in this situation as well. Two Sundays ago, during the meeting, I felt the Lord spoke to me about this Sunday And something came to me during the worship, and it was this. Jesus has won. Jesus has won. We're on the winning side. And the Lord reminded me that tears can be ones that run down your face, or they can be inner tears of sadness. But this is the promise of God. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be the shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away Every tear from their eyes. How many tears is that? How many tears have you shed? How many tears have you shed before the Lord? How many tears have you shed before others? How many tears have you shed silently? How many tears are you shedding now? How many tears of sorrow are there in your heart right now? There comes the day when God will wipe away how many? How many of your tears? Every. Every. Every tear. Your child or toddler runs and falls over. They're running to you. They fall over. They graze their knee. They start crying, wailing. What do you do? Are you indifferent? No. If you're any good, you go to them and you pick them up and you cuddle them and you kiss the wounded bit and you say, I'll kiss it better or whatever it is. Or you put a plaster on it. You help them. In other words, God himself will wipe away the tears. I love again in Psalm 56, the second part of verse 8. I love the way the contemporary English version translates this. You have stored my tears in your bottle and counted each of them. You have stored my tears in a bottle and counted each of them. Wow, isn't that precious? Your tears are not unseen by the Lord. They're seen by him. And they're precious to him. Verse 8 and 9. David says, Away from me all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. I read a book recently by Pete Gregg. Who's one of the instigators of 24-7. The book's called Dirty Glory. And I quoted it. From it before, I'd like to quote another passage where he writes this Nothing we sow for the Lord is ever wasted, 
No prayer, no kindness, no sacrifice. The seed may be buried for a while, but it will come to fruition in due season. Thing is, well, it may not come in the way that we think it should or in the time frame that we think it should. But I love that. I find that very encouraging. The seed may be buried for a while, but it will come to fruition in due season. How many prayers of yours are those seeds? How many seeds of prayer have you planted that you have not yet seen spring up out of the earth? And sometimes the danger is this. We pray prayers. I know it because I'm wrestling with it. I'm praying stuff and I'm planting the seeds of prayer and I'm looking. I'm looking. If I don't look every day, then I'll look every week. See, is there anything growing there? Are there any shoots of growing from that seed of prayer? There's nothing happening. Nothing happening. Okay, I'll pray again. Lord, will you bless that person? Bring them to faith, I pray. In Jesus' name, there's a seed. I'll plant that. I'm looking. Nothing's happening. Water again. Lord, bless that person. Pour your spirit out upon them. Give them revelation of who you are. Put some water on the seed. And I'm watching. I'm waiting to see if there's any life coming. And then I thought, oh, oh, just abandoned that. There's nothing going on there. That's a waste of time, isn't it? No, no. Maybe there are seeds in there that are being ready to germinate. And we don't know about it because God is at work in mysterious ways. And David finds an answer here. Despite the anguish that he's been suffering, the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. Does he who, have, who, who made the ears not hear? Does he who made the eyes not see? Does he who made the mouth not speak? Tells us in the prophets. And notice here there's a suddenly of God as well. My enemies, they will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. So who knows? We heard a sermon on that a couple of weeks ago. If you weren't here, John Groves came and he spoke on the suddenlies of God. How God can turn things around in a moment. And God can do things in different ways. Our responsibility is to put our hand in his hand. To trust him as we're waiting for those seeds to germinate and to persevere and to trust in his unfailing love. I want to ask you a question as I finish now. Are you suffering in some way? If you are, express what you really feel to the Lord. Don't hold it back. He can cope with your anguish. He can cope with the reality of what you're feeling. But do pray and recognize again that Jesus is the suffering servant who fully grasps the things that you're going through. He's known as the suffering servant. He understands you. And God is for you. So one thing you can do again this morning as we respond to the word is we can reaffirm our trust in God. Even though you may not understand why you're going through what you're going through. Who knows? You're suffering like Job's may be used to help others. I don't know. And we can rejoice in him as well because suffering will not have the last word. All tears will be wiped away. And you, dear friends, If you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're on the winning side. Amen? Amen.